you please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 2 again with me? This morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. And as I read this morning, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem. Then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary was treasuring all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as we always do, we'll ask God's blessing on this time. Father, as we enter into this time... We admit to you that we are a people that apart from you can do nothing. We need the help of your Holy Spirit right now to feed us, to open our eyes to see again Christ, the good news of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings great joy. Would you enable us to see that now as we take time to open your word and look into to see what we need for our souls. In Jesus' name. Amen. Around 13.8 billion years ago, I don't know why everyone's laughing. Around 13.8 billion years ago, the cosmos was formed in a single cataclysmic event, a great collision that sparked the beginning of the universe as we now know it. So asserts the science books handed out to public school children these current days. This Big Bang theory is postulated from an observable fact. And that fact is this. The universe today is constantly expanding. Astronomers have rightly documented that many stars and galaxies are actually moving away from us. So, the theory goes, if you 
work it back far enough, there must have been some point in the past when all that we see exploded from nothing. Now, Christians can actually agree to a certain extent with what has thus been said. There was a great explosion of light and oceans and land and stars. And it came about when the uncreated God, Yahweh of hosts, began speaking. It is ridiculous to claim, however, that nothing collided with nothing and suddenly made something. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we might also vocalize that we have a slight discrepancy with the billions of years stuff. Does anyone know what 13.8 billion minus 6,000 is? Might be our dispute with the science today. The Bible says, let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why, psalmist? Why? For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Our God is in the business of creating, and he does that with words. His vocalizations in Genesis 1 were the real Big Bang event. And so it should not surprise us that after his perfect universe became corrupted by the sin of men, God's word would be the tool that he used to again recreate that world after his perfect will. The text this morning gives us a kind of foretaste of that recreation decree that we're going to see all through this gospel. In this announcement of good news that brings great joy, the message of Christ come to save is declared on earth, get this now, for the very first time. And like the creative decree of God at the beginning of time, this good news, full of power and efficacy, starts working immediately. The question that you must answer this morning, church, is this. What effect has the good news had on you? Look with me now at verse 8 in the text. Luke chapter 2. It says in the Legacy Standard Version, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we actually know a lot about the territory around Bethlehem at this time. And this grazing area was close to the city. It was about two miles or so away. And it was colloquially, colloquially referred to as the shepherd's field. At the outset of our study this morning, this pericope of text, we're already faced with a big question from Luke. Why shepherds? He takes the time to stop the story of the birth of Christ and bring in this group of people, the shepherds. Why? Why shepherds? What does Luke want to communicate to us by going to the shepherds? Matthew goes a different direction with his text. He goes straight to the wise men, and rightly so. Matthew's interested with the theme of the kingship of Jesus. So it would make sense that we three kings 
would come and bow down before the king of kings. It fits with his theme. Now, a lot of people assume that Luke is just going the opposite direction. Jesus for the lowly. Jesus for the downtrodden. Weren't the shepherds the oppressed class back then? Weren't they the outcasts? Weren't they known for being a kind of seedy sort of people? Weren't they the marginalized of the Israelite society? Now, there is some evidence that the shepherds were not upper-class citizens. However, I listened to a great message this last week by our brother Matt Cook in Maynardville at Maynardville Fellowship, and he talked about how many of the shepherds could have been financially well-off, went through how much a sheep was worth and an average flock size, and it was pretty interesting to think about them in a different light. They did have limited access to the temple, however, and polite society, if you will. But all the writings about shepherds being the so-called red-headed stepchildren of Israel are written about five centuries after the birth of Christ. You know what I find really interesting? Is almost all of the shepherd motifs that we find in Scripture are positive in nature. They're positive. Consider the shepherding patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Consider Moses with the flock of Jethro. Of course, you're probably thinking of young David tending his father's sheep. Or think about all of the shepherding imagery in the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the wisdom that God pulls from the image of shepherds. Luke certainly takes time to include groups that are kind of outside of normal society, that don't have that level of prestige. But remember what I said at the beginning of our study of Luke. Luke's gospel is not, in contrast to Matthew's, the gospel for the poor and oppressed. Luke's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the gospel for all people. And that's actually what it says in verse 10 of our text this morning. Good news of great joy for all the people. That's why the shepherds are being addressed in this passage. Luke's gospel, he wants to communicate to us that the good news goes all the way up and it goes all the way down. It can touch a man like Zacchaeus at the top of the economical food chain and then it comes all the way to even the lowliest shepherd, perhaps forgotten and obscure in the dark outside of little Bethlehem. This good news comes to the common folk, a part of Israel that's ate up with sins just like the rest. They needed the good news, and that good news brings great joy. But I am getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. And there we read, And an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Contrary to popular art, what you may have seen in some of these beautiful picture depictions of the angel appearing before the shepherds and their eyes are all gazing up at the sky and they're looking into the heavens at this group of angels, the Bible says that the angel stood before them. What it's trying to communicate is that he's actually on the earth next to them. This is the same word that was used in chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel stood next to the altar in the temple as Zechariah was presenting the sacrifice. 
Also notice this. There's a contrast Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see that these shepherds were keeping watch by night, and then the glory of the Lord shone around them. He wants us to not just see this, but he wants us to feel the change in the light. Full darkness, third shift shepherds, and then suddenly, boom, there was light. Now, if your mind goes immediately to Genesis 1, you're thinking the way Luke wants you to think. It was not just the, any light that they saw either. This was the doxa light, that special kind of brightness that the Hebrews called the kobad, the Shekinah glory of God. This angel had been in God's presence, been before the very throne room of God, and thus was emanating light that had come from the throne of God. The shepherds, rightly so, were afraid. This past week, I was taking my son Caleb to St. Boniface Academy, and on our way there that morning, we were talking about how your eyes hurt when you turn a light on in the dark. And, and then we discussed how our pupils will open or close, kind of like the aperture of a camera, to let in more or less light, depending on the situation and how much our eyes need. But, but unlike a camera, our eyes don't do it instantaneously. They can't make that adjustment quickly. It takes some time for that adjustment to take place. And the sudden change of light can be very painful. The brightness that hit these shepherds must have been of a physically painful kind. They went from starlight to the same light that emanates from the throne of God himself. So you can understand why they were seized with that typical fear. The LSB uses the term terribly frightened. We should expect at this point to see that phrase that we normally see when the angels visit. May phobe iste, do not be afraid. It's here that we reach the big bang moment. It's here that we reach the announcement the angel came to deliver. The first part of the announcement is, I bring you good news. And this is quickly followed by, which is of great joy for all of the people. This angel is the heavenly messenger of God's good news, the euangelizo. Sounds a bit like evangelical. This is the first announcement of God's salvation in Christ to men. And notice this. What is the promised fruit of that good news? When it arrives, what does it do? It produces great joy. It always produces great joy. This theme is going to come up again and again in Luke's gospel. From Luke chapter 10. Now the 70 disciples returned from preaching the good news. And they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. From Luke 15 in the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just a few verses later in the parable of the lost coin, Jesus taught that in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
And after his ascension into heaven, Jesus' disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. This is kind of the drumbeat of the gospel of Luke, if you will. Good news, and it brings great joy. Good news is given, and it brings great joy. Now at this point in the sermon, I need to pause and ask a question. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ ever brought you great joy? Consider that question for just a minute. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ ever brought you great joy? If your mind is tempted to start an introverted navel-gazing expedition, or if you think that I'm getting ready to load you up with a new kind of legalism, hold on for just a minute. This text makes it very clear. It makes a very straightforward claim. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces great joy. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can hear the joy in his words. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. He goes on to say a few verses later, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. People who claim the name of Jesus Christ ought to be marked by an undercurrent of peace and joy. I'm not arguing that a Christian will never go through seasons where they, they experience a loneliness, they have to traverse a valley of sadness or isolation. But where in the Bible, ask yourself this question, where in the Bible is a Christian who has by faith seen the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and has managed to remain Gloomy, sour-faced, like Winnie the Pooh's Eeyore. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit joy? Before I was converted in December of 2001, I can confess to you, church, that I was emotional, I was effeminate, and I was a depressive wreck. I brought rain clouds with me everywhere that I went. When Jesus saved my sad soul from the judgment of God that winter... Everything changed. And I did notice that there was a change in myself, but I didn't notice it quite the same way that the people around me noticed it. My friends at school were asking and saying to one another, what happened to Chris? He's really nice all of a sudden. He's happy. He's fun to be around right now. And I praise God for that. All glory be to Christ for his change in me through the gospel. This is not to say that I've never faced any sadness or that I don't have a sinful tendency to be a public kind of wet blanket towards people. Like all Christians before me, I have had to pray the same prayer that King David once prayed. Restore to me, Yahweh, the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit from Psalm 51. I prayed that prayer many times. Restore it to me, Lord. Give it back to me. I want the joy of my salvation again. But I ask you this, church. I want to continue to press this. 
as it is right here in front of us in the text. If you have never experienced joy, which comes from hearing Christ and running to him to be saved, it's a fair question to ask yourself. Have you really come to Christ? Have you really come to Christ? If you say no, or I'm not sure, then run to Christ. Then run to Jesus. Listen to verse 11 of this morning's text. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel was sent in that moment to give both a direct and a personal message to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And this is something that we ought to remember. The gospel message is a personal one. It is given to individuals. And I offer it to you this morning. You who perhaps all your life long have been a joyless person and have never found solace in the arms of Christ. Come to Christ. Who cares what other people think? Well, I thought that she was already a Christian. I mean, he knows so much of the Bible. How is it that he's not already saved? This good news, as I said earlier, is the real Big Bang moment. It's the beginning of the recreation of the world, the let there be light moment that begins in our hearts. The response that we're told to expect is a glee that overwhelms life's tribulations. If this news has truly come home to your heart, you won't be able to sit still about it. No one who effectually hears of Christ can just stick their hands in their pockets the rest of their days and say, well, that's cool. Did you answer yes to my earlier question? Yes. Yes, I, I believe that my life has been changed forever by Christ's gospel. And I do remember receiving it with joy. Perhaps you have a similar testimony to mine or there have been other moments in your life when you've thought of the gospel and you've thought of Christ and his sacrifice and you've been filled again with that joy that comes from the presence of the Spirit. The next logical question to ask then is, does the good news produce great joy in you today? Real joy, not general happiness or excitement. If you think about it, you can get excited about a lot of different things. A great ribeye steak, for example, cooked perfectly medium rare with Carabas Marsala sauce dumped all over it and a big thick chunk of goat cheese on top. Now that'll put a smile on my face. But I ask you this question, is your life marked by that steady peace and joy that comes from the Spirit? Does that joy flow from your faith in Christ, that He has indeed saved you from eternal damnation? Spurgeon once said that a child of God should be a visible beatitude of joy and happiness, a living doxology for gratitude and adoration. Now, if that's not you, don't begin by making excuses. Well, you don't understand how hard my life is. And, well, I've had these trials, and you see what's happened in my family, and I've lost a lot of money at one point, and there's brokenness in my home right now. Why is it that when we don't manifest the fruit of the Spirit, our go-to is to make excuses for it? Why? Why is it not instead to chase after Christ? 
It's just too great a burden to place on people, Chris. Nobody's this happy. Nobody smiles all the time. I would say don't excuse your contentment in your sullenness. Instead, repent and seek Christ for whatever it is that's robbing you of that joy. Oftentimes, there's hidden sin in our life. We've got sin in the camp. Back in our tent, we've got something underneath that blanket that we're hiding from the rest of the congregation, that we're trying to hide from God. Perhaps it's a lack of contentment in the season of life that God's placed us in. Are you refusing to serve your spouse or your children because you just really don't enjoy it? Repent. Look, to, look again to Jesus. Plead for that restoration of the joy that the Bible assures us characterizes the children of God. And look at verse 11 again. Let's behold Christ together. Verse 11 says that there was a Savior that had come who is Christ, who is the Lord. All three of these words together here in one verse. This is the only time in the New Testament that you see Savior, Christ, and Lord all in such a close space. The term Savior refers back to the Old Testament deliverers, particularly the judges. However, it's most often used in the Old Testament to describe God who consistently saved Israel again and again from trials, from sickness, from all sorts of persecutions. The title Christ connects Jesus to the throne of David and the anointed king of Psalm 2 who would come and do that saving work. And the final word, Lord, at this point in the Lucan narrative is largely undeveloped. However, it does become a key phrase in his Christology going forward. It suggests that there is more to Jesus than mere Messiahship. Yes, Matthew is the gospel about the kingship of Jesus, but Luke doesn't want us to forget. Jesus came to save. He also came to rule. He came to rule all. Jesus is David's son, but is David's King as well, as Psalm, 10 record, Psalm 110 records, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the angel, in a sense, is saying here in the Lucan passage this morning, Jesus saves, Jesus fulfills, and Jesus rules. Jesus rules over all. Are you looking for a Savior, lost one? There is none other than Jesus Christ. What about someone to fulfill all the types and shadows? You want to make sure that that one that you're going to put your faith in actually did everything that it was foretold of him that he would do. And Luke is telling us that Jesus did all those things. Does it make sense that he who did these things would not also be the first, would be the greatest, would be the Lord over all? Church at Christ the King, do you have a need today? then would you run to Christ? Are you joyless? This God-man is the solution for the sorrows of all of the world. So today, whether you be in Christ or outside of Christ, run to Christ. Run to Him. This same Savior offered to the shepherds is offered freely to each of us today. This will be a sign for you, the Bible tells us. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths in lying in a manger. Why did God give them a sign? He's saying, go see him. 
Go see him. You don't believe me? Then go see him. Go look on him for yourself. You want to see him for yourself? Go right ahead. May God be with you. But get ready. Because when you go, and when you set eyes on Christ, when you truly see him, when you truly find him, you won't be able to contain the joy that bursts forth from you. As if to demonstrate that this reality of good news that brings great joy is not just a reality on earth, but it is a reality everywhere, whether things be visible or invisible. The whole field of shepherds bursts forth with light and a host of angels appears standing around the other angel. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. This multitude of angels is normally the group of angels that assembles for the war of Yahweh. But here they are, not to declare war, but to sing of the peace of God that has come to men through Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest, they sing. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now there's some beautiful pairing in this song that the angels sing. Glory to God in the highest. In heaven, you can think. And then peace to men on earth. So God gets glory in heaven as his salvation works its way, bringing peace to men on earth with whom he is pleased. When the good news is proclaimed, it brings great joy and even heaven itself cannot stay silent. I ask you again, doubting person, do you lack joy in the saving work of Jesus Christ? In him who is now risen and reigning as king over all, can it be that the hostility between your father in heaven and you has finally come to an end? In Christ it has. Has your reception of the message of the good news brought about a sense of peace, of sonship, of a new and forever paternal love from the Father? Or are you still unsure of His forgiveness for you? Then let me ask you a different question. Are you trying to find joy and peace in something else? Perhaps even spiritual truths that are taught from this pulpit and from the men of this church. Have you received and believed by faith the truth of the Trinity or the inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible? You'd say, yes, I believe those things. Would you say that you believe that the Bible is God's word or that you adhere to and practice the reformed doctrines of grace? Would you say that you're a Calvinist or you believe in the free will of men. Or you believe in pietism or puritanism. Or you're a theonomist or a post-millennialist. Or you're a pre-trib rapture guy. Or you have a zeal for a renewal of a godly patriarchy. Or you believe in godly masculinity. Or you're a, you believe in a quiet and submissive femininity that manifests itself in yelling at other women online that they should too be quiet and submissive. Beloved, hear me when I say this. You can believe all of those things. And I'm saying this too. You can put the Trinity up there. 
I believe in the Trinity. But just believing in the Trinity will not give you peace with God. None of those things that I just mentioned can make you eternally happy in Christ. Only the good news of King Jesus' successful rescue mission of your damned soul can save you from the wrath of God and put that joy in your heart. Let me say this again. It is Jesus and only Jesus who saves, none other. Stop looking for alternative joys. There are none. Lost or saved this day, won't you do as the angels beckoned? Go. Go see Christ. Go see him. He awaits you. Now, look at the response. How did the shepherds take this message? The angel has proclaimed the gospel for the first time on earth with joy. And then it was followed by praise. And then what did the shepherds do? It happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to themselves, it's immediately struck up a conversation, let us go to Bethlehem then. Let us see this thing which has happened that the Lord has made known to us. And the shepherds' response, if you'll think back to Luke chapter 1, is just like Mary's. It's an immediate response. They instantly agree, we've got to go see if this sign is as the angel has said. So they went, I love the LSB rendering of verse 16, in a hurry. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. These instant responses that we see should remind us of that creative power of God's decrees. You remember back to Genesis 1, let there be light. Immediately it happens. Let there be seas and land and animals and stars. Immediately it happens. What happens in these men's heart? Well, God spoke and it came to be. He regenerates. The human heart freely functions according to his will. Now, I understand that the full message of Christ's saving work, including the cross, the grave, and the resurrection, are not all present here for us. But even here, the message of the Savior come has such power that it creates irresistible movement towards Christ. And notice what they're compelled to do in verse 17. Upon seeing the child with their own eyes, they went and made known the statement which had been told them about this child. They can't keep it in. They instantly start spreading the, the good news to others. You're witnessing in this text the first office holders of evangelist. These were the first men to ever go and proclaim the gospel to their fellow men. And, and if you will, there's been a kind of a passing of a baton too. Heaven has said, I bring you good news. And then as soon as that good news is set to them, the men take the good news to other men. The next leg of the race has already begun. From here on out, the gospel will be proclaimed by men to men. Years ago, during one of our anniversary trips, Tammy and I got an opportunity to go to the um, X-10 reactor in Oak Ridge National Labs. Got to get on a bus and had to go through a security checkpoint and all those things. But they, they did those tours back then, and they may have started them again, I don't know. But Tammy and I went on this trip, and we got to tour the facility, which contains a massive block of graphite. And, and that block is designed with 36 
horizontal rolls that have about 35 holes each. And into these holes, they would insert these long metal fuel slugs in a coordinated sequence. And this would initiate a continuous nuclear reaction. If I'm remembering the story correctly, we were told that the Nobel laureates in charge of the project, who were codenamed Holly and Farmer, had planned for the reactor to go critical during the morning work hours of November the 4th, 1943. Instead, they were awakened long before sunrise. Having begun the process the night before, the technicians realized that the reactor was approaching criticality much faster than they had anticipated. Holly and Farmer had to race down Bethel Valley Road just over here in Oak Ridge in the dark in order to reach the project in time. November the 4th, 1943, at 5 a.m. in the morning, the world's first nuclear reactor reached its peak power point. It's hard when I think on that to imagine a power more substantial than nuclear power, than nuclear fission, this technology that we're still exploring today. But if you can get a hold of what I'm about to tell you next, church, it will change the way that you live and it will change how much of an impact you will have in this world for the kingdom of Jesus. When you're speaking the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are handling the most potent force in all of the universe. Nuclear technology doesn't come close to this. Nuclear technology can change the world, can damage the world. We've used it to power the world. But it can't create the world. It certainly can't recreate the world. It can touch what is temporal, but it will never be able to affect that which is eternal. It can make things dead, but it can't make the dead come back to life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can. The angel of Yahweh made this announcement to the shepherds. They responded instantly with faith, running to Christ. And upon seeing Christ, they immediately began making Christ known to others. In verse 18, we read, Those who heard were profoundly affected as well. They marveled, is the word the legacy standard uses. They marveled at the shepherd's account of Jesus. And finally, if you let your eyes drift down to verse 20, these sheep herders eventually got back to their night shift, but they're still not silent. Why is there a song, Silent Night? It was not a silent night. People were proclaiming the glory of Christ this whole night. They went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. As we saw earlier, the gospel, when it is received by faith, fills the recipient with unspeakable joy. Now consider this, church. It is only through the preaching of the gospel that God works the miracle of regeneration and men are effectually called to Christ. In other words, if I may phrase it this way, when the Holy Spirit works through the gospel, so much power is released that image bearers of God, though dead in their trespasses and sins, are in a moment made alive together with Christ. Put it another way. When the gospel begins working, it's irresistible. 
It's often objected that God would never force someone to believe in him against his or her will. However, Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How many? No one. No one can. He says in another place, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not some, not a handful, not the majority. He says all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the ones who come to me, I'll never cast out. The fact of the matter is this, church, that men, before God acts on them through the gospel, are dead men. But through the preaching of the gospel, God initiates the rebirth process. Let there be light. And then, this is wonderful to think of, as free a thing as a man has ever done, the most free decision he ever makes in his entire life He comes running to Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 1 says that after the renewing of their wills, men come most freely being made willing by His grace. In order for God to do this drawing work in the heart, what we call in theology the inward call, this is where He irresistibly draws a man to Christ. In order for God to do that, there must be an outward call. The announcement of the Messiah, come to save, has to be made. God has divinely limited Himself to these means. This is the way that He's chosen to do it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why not just preach the gospel? Why not share the good news with family, with friends? with people you meet in Clinton. Do you believe that any moment, your one-time announcement of the good news, which the Bible says will bring great joy, can be used of God to begin a chain reaction with more power than nuclear fission that will ripple through history and change the world forever? Do you have the faith to trust that His working through your sharing of Christ will be so effectual that man or woman or child can, when their hearts have been set free from their bondage to corruption, they cannot resist His offer to come, but they only be saved. And that their real and vivacious response in Christ will be joy that spreads the good news to others who will perhaps themselves be converted and begin sharing the message of grace with more and more people. This will continue, the Bible promises us, until like Habakkuk said, The earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the seas. And it all started with some shepherds in Bethlehem. And it was continued by some disciples in Jerusalem. And now here we are with Christianity, perhaps the most widely known and professed belief, and the effects of Christianity across the globe, particularly in the West, have brought such peace and such prosperity and such technology and such wealth. There is nothing more powerful in all the universe than the gospel of Jesus Christ. No nuclear weapons can affect change at this level. No governments, no dictators, no despots, no criminals, no rapists or murderers, no lost family members or friends can hear this 
None of these can resist the power of God through the working of the preaching of the gospel. There are no bombs that will be set off which could stop its spreading. No recessions or depressions that will forever halt its advance. No laboratory designed microbial agents could be sprayed in our atmosphere in such a way that men will one day bow the knee to anyone other than King Jesus. And I'm not endorsing a, a China balloon conspiracy there, just so we're all on the same page. Brothers and sisters, if the gospel has not taken root in your heart, then run to Christ today. And if it has, it will have produced such joy, it will compel you to share Christ with others. I know that there are special giftings. I know that people are gifted evangelists. I know that some have a knack for sharing Christ at the most random times, and then it just seems to be so effectual right at a gas pump, and this man just falls on his knees and confesses Christ as Lord. God has given different gifts to different men. But when you sit around the Thanksgiving table here in a few months, and you're visiting with lost family, does your heart long for them to know Jesus? When your coworker bickers about his horrible marriage, his low pay, his destructive drinking habits. Do you think about the joy that Christ has brought your heart and you desire him to have that same joy? Share the message of Christ, beloved. Share Jesus. Repent of the days and months and years that you have held back because of fear or misunderstanding or hesitation or whatever it may be. Believe by faith that the gospel of Jesus Christ has more power in anything else in this world. Speak it. Say it. Get it out of you. Spurgeon rightly said to his congregation one Sunday morning in a sermon, Suppose a number of persons were to take in their heads that they should defend a lion, full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for the lion can take care of himself. Spurgeon concluded his analogy by saying this, the best apology for the gospel is to just let the gospel out. Someone in this room could do that this very week. It, it could come with the result that the lost, long, long lost family member or that long prayed for acquaintance is in that moment instantly converted and filled with the joy of Jesus, begins himself or herself to go and share Christ with others. They can't contain it. And then you will be in that moment compelled to go and share Christ again. And it'll continue on and on like ripples in a pond until the whole earth is filled with the glory, the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Now I want to conclude with verse 19. And this is Mary's response to the shepherd's message. Mary, the Bible says, was treasuring all of these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, if you think about it, Mary is in this moment getting some new information from the angels. 
at least as far as what Luke's told us to this point. She was not told about the good news which brings great joy. That language wasn't used when Gabriel met her. She was not told that personally and individually to her, a Savior was coming. The shepherds were. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. She did not witness a host of angels singing and glorifying God after Gabriel left. This information astonishes her, but you see that there's a contrast between verses 18 and 19. The rest of the town heard and marveled at the message. It generated a lot of chatter, it seems. Luke doesn't tell us everything that he means by this. Was it that the whole town believed the message or that it just tickled their ears? It created a new ring of gossip? We don't know. But Mary was affected on a different level. And this is what Luke wants you to see here. He wants you to see that for Mary, the message went deep into her heart. The Greek participle symbolousia, which is pondering in the Legacy Standard Bible, essentially means to mull over something, to try and figure out the symbolism. That's symbolousia. That's where we get our word for it. She wanted to find the reality of what these things pointed to. Remember, at this point, Mary doesn't have a complete picture of everything that's going to take place. She knows some of the details, but she's still working through them all. It also says here in verse 19 that she sunatere the thoughts of her mind. She was protecting them, preserving them, defending them. And, and the Bible uses language that says this went on for some time. It wasn't that she just thought about this for a couple of hours and then she gave up thinking about it. It says she went on pondering these things, defending them in her heart, treasuring them, storing them up. Now I think that Luke personally interviewed Mary at some point. When he was going around getting all of his details, I think at some point he connected with the mother of our Lord. And, and, and Mary shared with him that at Jesus' birth, with her still limited scope of what was actually happening, after the visit with the shepherds and the great story of the angels that they recounted to her and the response of all the people in the village, as she's holding this promised child whom all of these events are revolving around, this was etched into her memory in a way that she would never be able to forget. And when the gospel comes to us, beloved, not only does it produce joy, but it brings us again and again to Christ in thoughtful meditation and prayer. It changes, as the Bible says, it changes our desires. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in Yahweh, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Most people look at that verse and say, Well, I want my desires, so let me go rejoice in Yahweh, and then I'll get my desires. And that's not what the verse is teaching. It's saying rejoice in Yahweh, and He'll give you the desires you ought to have. He'll put the right desires in your heart. This news had brought joy to Mary, and it also completely changed the affections of her heart. She began to think on and mull over and even abide in Christ. She was permanently affected at the heart level. Are you lacking joy in Christ? Then abide in Jesus. Remain in Him. Set aside time each day to meditate on the things of Christ and your part in His kingdom. What has Christ done to save you? Ask questions like that. What is He doing right now in the world? 
How are you contributing to that? How can you contribute to that? How did he love you in the midst of your sin? How many sins does he daily overlook in you that you don't receive discipline for, that he loves you in spite of? What has he given you to fight your sin right now? Abide in Jesus, church. He himself said, abide in me so that his joy would be in us and so that our joy would be complete. We get a spring of joy at the announcement of the gospel and the reception of it, but we keep that joy. We maintain that joy. Our joy is made complete in abiding in Christ. Again, from the pen of Spurgeon. A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is impossible. It is as impossible as a spring without flowers or a daybreak without light. We will never see the full revival of Clinton, Tennessee until we are thoroughly steeped in the joy of our Lord. This will come through regular repentance to God and regular repentance to those around us for our sin. And it comes with a treasuring again, the thoughts of our Savior. It will be spread with power through the irresistible good news that is daily recreating the world. And one day, when Christ returns, we will join the angel's song, singing together with our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, glory to God in the highest. And in that day, our joy will have no end. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day, but we remember in a text like this, it is through your gospel that that day has already broken into this one. We can experience the eternal joys and rewards of heaven, even to an extent right now in this life. But we are told in your word that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So as the shepherds were called to go and see Christ and have joy in him, and that that joy would lead to sharing Christ with others, would you restore to us again the joy of our salvation? Would you uphold us with a willing spirit that we would be willing each day to sacrifice the various things that take our attention away from Christ so that we can be again with him and we can find joy for our time of need. Oh Lord, may Christ the King be marked as a congregation in Clinton, Tennessee that is so fully saturated with the joy of the Lord. And I pray that for our struggles, as you send them to us and as we pray for deliverance, that it would be the joy of Yahweh that would be our strength. We ask this in his name. Amen.